0: Today, we're going to be reading from three passages, one in John 20 and the other two in Acts chapter 1. So, John 20, verses 17 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And now Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then down to verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we have three passages here, and something very strange is going on. In the first passage, we see Mary Magdalene clinging to Jesus. It doesn't say exactly what. Did she, did she hug him? Did she fall at his feet and grab his legs? We, we don't know. But she was clinging to him in some way, and Jesus says to her, Woman, do not cling to me. Why? Because I have not yet ascended to my Father and to your Father. And so we have two Reality is going on here. We have the resurrection of Jesus, and we have his ascension to the Father. Then in the second set of passages, we have the same thing. The Lord is with his disciples. And it says that he had presented himself to them alive by many proofs. There we have resurrection. Then he says at the end of the passage uh, that he's going to give them a commission. We'll talk about that in a second. But then it says he was lifted out of their sight and a cloud covered him and took him away. And so we have these two realities in this set of three passages. We have the resurrection of Jesus and we have his ascension. So So so. So ascension is the next logical step after resurrection. But what's intriguing to me is that between these two events, there are 40 days. Jesus is resurrected. The next logical step is ascension, but he stays for 40 days. And my question is, why? Why, why did he stick around for 40 days? Because the ascension, we don't often talk about the ascension, uh, but the ascension is a critical piece of the history of God's redemption. It has to happen. It's not Jesus leaving his disciples at the most critical time. Rather, it is Jesus assuming the seat of heavenly command for the ongoing mission that he came to accomplish. And that mission is urgent. He came from heaven to earth to accomplish that mission. He stretched his arms out on a cross of wood to accomplish that mission. He bore the sins of the world to accomplish that mission. So what could be more crucial than for him to ascend, take his seat of heavenly command, and finish that mission? It's almost like the Allied forces storming the beaches of Normandy and at great cost to their own ranks, they are victorious. And then, instead of pushing into the interior of France to finish the job, they just set up camp on the beaches for 30 days, for 40 days, whatever. It's like that's That is a tactical mistake. (laughs) That's not the way that you win a battle. If you want to secure the victory, you keep pushing into France in order to liberate it. It's urgent that you do so. But that's not what Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, does. He is resurrected, and then he waits for 40 days before he pushes into the interior, so to speak. So why? Why does he do this? Well, we see the answer in verse 3 of Acts 1. It says, during this time, he presented himself to them, excuse me, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he did two things during those 40 days. Number one, he presented himself alive by many proofs. And then number two, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And so that's why those 40 days were so important important to that first generation of Christians. They had to believe, they had to know deep down in their guts that Jesus was alive, and they had to understand the nature and the mission of God's kingdom on this earth. And we too, who are separated by many centuries from them, we have an equally urgent need to understand those two things. If we don't understand that Jesus Christ was alive, it is alive. If we don't understand that he is resurrected and that the kingdom of God is coming to this earth and is in our midst, then we risk becoming just a civic club or a social hour, or a charitable organization. And as important as those kinds of things are to the functioning of society, there are many others that do those sorts of things, but the risen Christ has given us, his church, a different vocation altogether. On our lips, he has put the message that Mary Magdalene taught the disciples. He is risen, I have seen him alive, and the kingdom of God is in our midst. So we need to take, if if it's that crucial, that Jesus Christ stayed for 40 days to make sure that his people in that generation and every generation after understood, we need to understand those two things as well. So let's look at them each in turn. First, that Christ is risen. And second, what he taught them regarding the kingdom. So number one, Christ is risen. So as we already looked at verse uh, three in Acts uh, chapter one, he says, he presented himself alive. To them by many proofs so what's interesting about what happened in those 40 days is that yes he presented himself alive to them but he did it in kind of a strange way he was never in one place for very long he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus as Matt taught us a couple weeks ago Um, and once they recognized him in the breaking of the bread he disappears from their sight and then he goes, and he appears to his disciples behind closed, locked doors, and he eats with them and, um, and says, you know, this is me. Like, I am here. I'm not a ghost. I'm actually resurrected. This is a body. And then Thomas isn't there, so he comes back a week later, and he says, Thomas, it's me. Put your hands in my side, in my wounds. See that it is me. And then Paul later tells us in 1 Corinthians that at one point he appeared to 500 people. So he's appearing to all these different people, all these different configurations of them. And so that's what he means, Luke, in the the book of Acts, that he presented himself by many proofs. And then to add to those proofs, like he, he ate in front of them to show like this is a resurrected body. Now why did they need so many proofs? Why why did he need to prove it to them over the course of 40 days, that he was, in fact, resurrected? Now, I know why we would need many proofs. Like, we're post-enlightenment, skeptical people. But, you know, first-century Jews, they were ignorant. They were ancient. They believed in magic. So, therefore, a resurrected person was no problem for them to believe, right? No. (laughs) No, not at all. The world did not need the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution to know that when people die, they stay dead. That's not like an innovation in thinking. Everybody has always known that. That is a universal human truth. But an astute observer would object and say, yes, but we've read our Old Testaments. The Jews believed in resurrection. That's true, they did. In fact, that was a unique belief among the pantheon of beliefs in their area, in the ancient Near East. And so, if anybody was going to believe that a man rose from the dead bodily, it would have been the Jews. And to that I would say, yeah, that's true. If you read your Old Testament prophets, they often speak of something called the day of the Lord in which God's Messiah will come in power and great glory and judge the earth, put his enemies under his feet and vindicate his own people. And in that day, there will be a general resurrection of the dead and they will be ushered in to his everlasting kingdom, brought to the mountain of the Lord and all shall be well everlastingly. So of course they believed it. No, no, what I just explained to you, what the prophets teach is that the day of the Lord will come at the end of history. That that is a cataclysmic moment that will fundamentally rupture the timeline that we live on. It's the end of history and all people will be resurrected. There was nothing in their minds, nothing in their prophets that suggested somebody would be resurrected in the middle of history. One person ahead of all the general resurrection. Nobody understood that. Nobody believed that. And that's why he had to present himself alive by many proofs. They had no categories for this. And why do they need convincing? Why did Jesus stay so long to convince them? It's because Jesus had a mission. He had a mission. And the message of that mission that he had to be sure that they grasped deep in their bones was this, I have seen the risen Lord. This is what Mary said, I have seen him. Christ is risen. And there is no other group in the entirety of the world to whom that message has been given. We are the only ones. The church, we are the only ones. We are a community of the resurrection. Nothing else matters if Christ is not raised. Let me say that again because that's important. Nothing else matters if Christ is not raised. Now, I remember when I was in college, I went to, I was a new Christian, I went to a college worship service at a church down the road, and the worship leader was up there, and between songs, he started talking. And he said, you know, there's like pads going on behind him, it's real emotional. He's like, you know, if I die and find out that this whole following Jesus thing was a sham. I won't be mad because it's made me a better man. It's made me a better husband. It's made me a better father. And all of us, we give our good evangelical mmms. Yes, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, and then they start playing the song again. Now, if I could go back in time I would have rushed that stage, (laughs) grabbed a microphone, and said, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. (laughs) Paul, if you want that on authority, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, listen, if Christ is not raised, then we are still dead in our sins. Therefore, not, but you still get to be moral. It's still a pretty good system. No, he says, if Christ is not raised, you are still dead in your sins, so you might as well eat, drink, and be merry. If Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. If it's just a moralistic system to make us better people, there are a lot less demanding ones, a lot more pleasurable ones. You might as well just walk away if Christ is not risen. But Christ is risen. We have it on the authority of the apostles, of Mary Magdalene, of the eyewitnesses that he was alive. He presented himself to them by many proofs. And he did it to people who were not expecting any such thing. They did not have any categories for a single resurrection in the middle of history. And so he stays for 40 days to make certain that the central integrating identity of his church revolves around the phrase, He is risen. So that's what he taught them, first of all, in those 40 days. Second, he taught them about the kingdom of God. But first, before we get into what the kingdom is and what he taught them about the kingdom, we got to talk about time, the nature of time. Because we see this in uh, verse 6 of Acts 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So 40 days, he's teaching about the kingdom, and therefore the pressing question that the disciples have is, Are you going to, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, there's been so much buildup to this question. Like, the the Jews, at this point, of course, are, are a conquered people, and they had been a conquered people for centuries before this. At this point, it happens to be the Romans. And so remember, when Jesus shows up in the beginning of his ministry and he starts preaching, the very first thing on his lips is the kingdom of God is at hand. And to the Jews, this of course, who who actually had their own kingdom in their history, what this meant was they had learned to anticipate the coming kingdom what this meant was the chance to be free, to, to be self-determined in their government, to have a Jewish king ruling over Jewish people once again. And then as Jesus comes closer and closer to Jerusalem in the last week of his life, he's right outside the city, they start shouting, Hosanna, Lord, save us. They throw their coats on the ground, they put him on a donkey and he rides in as a king. But he's arrested. He allows himself to be arrested. He's tried, and then he's crucified. And so all of their hopes for the kingdom coming back to Israel, for the kingdom being vindicated from all of these Gentile rulers was crushed. But now, now he's risen. Oh, he's far more powerful than any other Israelite king that has ever sat on the throne. So now must be the time. We didn't understand about the trial and the the crucifixion and the beating and all of that. We didn't understand about that. We thought you had left us. We thought you were not the one you claimed to be, but now you're resurrected by the power of God. Therefore, is now the time that the kingdom Is coming to Israel and his response is it is not for you to know the time or the seasons now those two those two words are important let me take a digression though let's talk about time for a moment Um, if you read the Greek philosophers on the reality of time. You're gonna find that they expressed and understood time according to two different realities. First, they experienced time as, as, we, as, as passage, um, like time experienced on earth. The sun rises, the sun sets. You have seasons that come and go. It's the tick of the clock, essentially. And for the Greek philosophers, they understood time in a circle. So it's endlessly repeating. It is endlessly doubling back on itself. And that means, well, I'll tell you what it means in a second. The the second reality, so not only is time endlessly repeating in a circle, the second reality they thought of when it came to time was timelessness. So you've got time endlessly repeating, and then you've got timelessness, which is another reality altogether. It's probably what we would call eternity. It's a reality that is unbound by time. It's a separate realm from the realm of unending time. Therefore, in the Greek thought, in in the Greek mind, to be in time, as we are all right now, to be in time is to be a slave Right? Because you can't escape the circle of time. And so in their minds, salvation was not temporal. Salvation was spatial. It's not blowing your minds. Okay, hold on. Let just be, okay. Time is a circle. So salvation, you, if you can't get out of the circle, you, you, you cannot be free. Therefore, salvation is spatial. You move to another reality off of the timeline, and then you enter into timelessness, and you are free. Now, if that sounds familiar, that's because a lot of Christians over the the years, over the centuries, have talked about time in this way, That, that we are trapped here, and that we are longing to be free to go to heaven, to go to eternity. But if this is how they talked, they did not get this idea from the Bible. This is the result of the influence of Greek thought into Christianity. In fact, there's this magnificent German theologian named Oscar Kuhlmann, and he says that basically every Christian heresy that has ever emerged in the church has its roots in this intrusive Greek concept of circular time and escape from reality. Every Christian heresy. Now, that's a big claim. You can go read his book, Christ in Time. It's marvelous, uh, but I don't have time to get into that here. The point is, this is how Greeks understood time. You still with me? Okay, now let's understand how the Bible describes time. If Greek time is a circle... Biblical time is a straight line. It is linear. There is a beginning and there is an end. At the beginning, creation. At the end, the fullness of God's kingdom, new creation. And so what's interesting is that when we get to the New Testament, this is all coming from the Old Testament, when we get to the New Testament, we actually have a new marker on the timeline. Time in the New Testament now has a middle. The Old Testament taught us about the beginning and the end, but now the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ forms its middle. So the Greeks start in eternity. They enter time and then they go back into eternity. That's the idea. And so there's no change whatsoever. You start in timelessness, you enter into time, you go back to where you began. But biblical time, there's progression, right? You start in a garden, you end in a city. You start with the presence of God being in Eden, in one place, in one patch on the earth. And then you end with the biblical revelation of the whole earth being in the shape of a cube, which is symbolic because the the Holy of Holies in the temple and the tabernacle was in the shape of a cube. It's symbolic that the whole earth will be pulsating with the glory and the presence of God. So there's progression here. There is change over time. Now, why am I going on and on about this? because if we don't understand time, the biblical reckoning of time, then we will not understand the disciples' question. That won't make sense. He says, will you at, they say, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is written in Greek. The Greek word for time here is chronos. It's like the tick of a clock. It's just one tick after another. Will you at this time Will you at this Kronos restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, the, the restoration of the kingdom is the next logical step. You've been resurrected. Now restore the kingdom. Reign in Jerusalem as the resurrected king. You must. But his response is astonishing. Verse 7, Acts 1. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. He uses two different words for time here. He takes up their word, Chronos. It is not for you to know the Chronos, but it's also not for you to know the kairos. Now, kairos maybe you've heard this before, it, it doesn't mean like the tick of the clock. It means more like a favorable moment. It's a Greek word. So how did the Greeks use it? The way they used it was that the kairos is the most favorable time for action, and I get to decide when that moment is. So for example, uh, I don't know, a month ago, my... Uh daughter wanted to go get a sketchbook at Target, and it's a Saturday morning, it's nine o'clock, and she asked my wife, can we go to Target and get a sketchbook? Well, my wife also had to take uh, my youngest son to karate at 1130. I don't know where I was during all this, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, but she said, uh, she said, no, The the target's on the way. We're not going to go and take two separate trips. It is not the favorable moment. So we'll go to target, get you a sketchbook on the way to karate. So she decided this is not the favorable moment for this. Later is the favorable moment for this. So that's the the Greek understanding of kairos. She decides, we decide when the most favorable moment is for something to occur. But in the New Testament... We get a new gloss, a a new dimension to this concept of kairos, this favorable moment. And we see it here in um, verse 8, excuse me, um, in verse 7. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, that's the kairos, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So in the New Testament, now we see, and we see this actually in the Old Testament as well with with, uh, the equivalent Hebrew word, that that the favorable moment for the redemptive activity of God is set by God's own authority. To the disciples, now is the moment. Now is the favorable time. But what, what the book of Acts is telling us, and we see this in Galatians, we see this in many places, is that... The favorable moment for God's redemptive activity he has fixed by his own authority. God in his own counsels decides when the favorable moment is to occur. And the scriptures are full of these favorable moments. The creation is a kairos. The exodus is a kairos. The the kingdom in Israel is a kairos. The the fullness of time, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time, in the fullness of kairos, God sent his son. All of these were kairos moments. And so what Jesus says is, there is a favorable time for the coming of the kingdom, for the end of history to occur, but it is not for you to know. And so, Jesus says, there is a moment. There is a time. There is a kairos coming, a a point on this line in which the kingdom of God will arrive in its fullness. And we shall always be with the Lord. Death shall be swallowed up. There will be no more pain or sickness or disease. All of it will be cast into the sea. There is a time coming. There will be no more sun or moon in that day because all the light that we will ever need will be shining from the glorious face of the resurrected Jesus Christ. It is coming, he said. There is a point on that line. And I know you think it should happen here, but it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. So, what's the answer to this question? Are you going to establish the kingdom now? He says, well, it's not for you to know. But, huh, this is amazing. Look at what he says, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So let's think through the logic here. The question, will you restore the kingdom? It's not for you to know, but not many days from now, the spirit of God will be poured out on you. So these are related, now watch. Jesus says, the kingdom in its fullness is not yet coming but in the pouring out of the Spirit, it will be here in part. Now the Old Testament prophetic literature, if you go back and you read that, we see that the pouring out of God's Spirit happens after the day of the Lord, after the end of history. That is part of what the everlasting kingdom of God will be, that God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. It's a a future reality. But then in Pentecost, which happens just a few days after what we're reading right here, God pours out his spirit in the middle of time. What is happening here? That's confusing. What's happening is that this future, by God's own command, has come rushing into the present. He is taking part of the future and bringing it into the present. It's the same thing with Jesus' resurrection, right? In the middle of history. There is a general resurrection coming at the end of history. But God decided in his own counsels that one man would be raised in the middle of history. And Paul goes on later in his letters to call this the first fruits. You think about a great orchard, all, all the trees are planted in rows, and at some point, the first fruit blooms. And that is an indication that the rest of the orchard will be fruitful. And so that's what we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, We have, and in the pouring out of the Spirit, we have the first fruits of a coming reality. Not in its fullness, but a taste of the future. And so Jesus' answer here to, will you restore the kingdom at this time? No, it's not for you to know. But as you go, as you go out from this place, proclaim that I am alive. Proclaim that Jesus Christ is risen Wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, the kingdom will be in your midst. It's astonishing. Now, briefly, what are we supposed to do with all this? Let's try to apply it. Number one, what does this mean for us? It means exactly the same thing. For us all these centuries later, as it meant for the original Christians who heard it. If we don't carry this message that He is risen, and we if we don't do it in the fullness of the Spirit that He poured out, no one else will. We are the unique carriers, the Christians of the world, the Church of Jesus Christ, we are the unique carriers of this message, and nobody else will carry it. There are other people. Who care for the poor. There are other people who engage in charitable actions, and we should do that as well. But there is only one group in the entire world who has this message and this spirit, and it is us, and we must carry it forward. Secondly, how do we accomplish that mission? How do we do this? Well, if you keep reading in the book of Acts, we see that there are many different ways to carry out this mission. The first is we we see lots of preachers in here. We've got Peter. We've got Paul. We've got Stephen, who stand up and use words of eloquence and power to convince the world, the listening world, that Jesus Christ is risen, and that his kingdom has arrived. But also, there's another way And we often miss this. We often uh, miss the the purpose of this passage, even though it's a very familiar passage. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God for having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If that... It's not a description of what is to come in the everlasting kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness. I don't know what is. They cared for each other. They sat in awe with one another. They gathered for worship. This is a taste of the future. Not, the the apostle Paul teaches us, not all are preachers, not all are teachers. We all have our individual gifts, but what we all can do as members of the community of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to witness to Christ's resurrection by gathering, by being together in worship and lifting our voices in glad songs of salvation. And here in 21st century America, we, we forget what, you know where there's some degree of tolerance for our faith. Uh, we forget what a subversive act this is right here, what we are doing. We forget what a subversive act this is. In other places in the world, our brothers and sisters throughout history and now have had to meet like this, but in secret. Why? Because gathering together in the name of the risen Jesus is a subversive act. It's a challenge to every other governing authority. Because when we come together, we confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is risen, and therefore all other claims on our lives are relative. It is a deeply subversive thing for us to gather as we are doing. We confess that he is the Lord and there is no other. And so when we gather, when we sing, when we pray, when we come to this table, we are witnessing to the watching world, to anyone who cares to see, that the kingdom of God is here. Look around. This is a visible manifestation of the kingdom of God, the people of God gathered to worship the risen king. This is an outpost of God's kingdom. And we don't cast out all the other authorities. There's nothing like that. I'm saying is that Christ is completing his mission to bring his kingdom through us. And he stayed for 40 days to make sure that we got it. And so today, brothers and sisters, we gather as a visible outpost of the kingdom of God and the community of the resurrected Christ. And in doing so, we are tasting the future. So we come to this table as we do every week. And this table actually has roots. And these roots stretch into the future and they stretch into the past. You remember when Jesus gave us this meal, he talked about the roots that stretch back into the past. He said, remember me. Whenever you take this, whenever you eat this meal, Remember me. Remember that my body was broken for you. Remember that my blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. But this meal also has roots that stretch into the future as well. And from both areas, it draws nourishment. Into the future, Jesus said at that last meal, I have longed to eat this meal with you and I will not eat it again until you are with me in the kingdom. <laughs> and so when we come to this table, these ordinary elements, eaten, consumed in faith. We are being nourished both by the past and the glorious future. And both of them come rushing into the present. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, it is so easy for us to forget the high calling that you have given us. I think if any of us were consulted, we would have told you to choose anyone but us. (laughs) We are weak. We are full of cracks. And yet, this is how you have chosen to put your glory on display through weakened people so that you may have the honor that is due you. Now, as we come and we eat this meal, I pray that you would strengthen us. Strengthen us to go out full of your spirit, proclaiming that Christ is risen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Brothers and sisters, this meal is for you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.